Hello, I'm Faisal Terry. Welcome to this edition of Calibre Podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. So hello everyone and welcome to our latest podcast from uh, Watchers of Switzerland. My name is Brian Duffy, I'm the CEO of the Watchers of Switzerland Group and delighted that you've joined us. We're really thrilled that so many of you out there listening to us and the and uh, listening to all of what we do, so thank you for that. Uh, without any doubt, the reason you do that is we have wonderful guests uh, uh, to speak to. And uh, today we're really thrilled because for the second time in our series, uh, we're joined by Nick Folks. Uh, Nick is a very renowned uh, author and journalist on a, a variety of wonderful subjects, including fashion, where we knew each other previous in previous lives, uh, high society, art, and uh, happily for today, uh, watches. So thank you again for, uh, for joining me, Nick. No, thank you for asking me. And we're going to talk about a brand I know that you love and one that's had a huge influence in the, the world of uh, uh, Swiss luxury watches, brand that's uh, repeatedly had been worn by Elvis, by Gorbachev, by, by Prince William, by JFK, and even by Chairman Mao. And, uh, and that's the Omega brand. I mean, Omega is... is it's, it got a huge part in the history of the development of Swiss watches. And I'm just so pleased to see it in the last 20, well, 15 years, really, really come back to a very, very strong position with an identity of its own. It's, it's you know, with Metas, with, uh, I mean, obviously this year we're all moon mad because it's 50 years. Yep. And, you know, a great new CEO as well. Yes, Reynald yeah. Eschleman is a sort of... You know, he's got more energy than several atomic power stations. Yeah, guy. no, he, he is a bundle of energy, but he's, he's clearly showing great vision. I, I totally agree with you. I think the, uh, the the new product development they've been doing over the last uh, couple of years and the real use of this tremendous heritage they've got really uh, really injected the, uh, a real momentum into the brand. But also what it's got, I think, being part of Swatch, is it has, and I think this is very, very important these days, it can draw upon immense resources, and I don't just mean financial resources such as those that have been used to build this splendid new facility in Bien, but the industrial resources, the research. I think today to be a watchmaker of consequence, and I mean of either numerical or reputational consequence in the big wide world rather than an isolated success here or there or or a niche success, you, you really do need to demonstrate you know, power in, in all the power, industry, uh, innovation, imagination, but all, all from that sort of, you, you've got to offer, a, it's no longer enough to buy a case, your case is here, your watch glass there, your movement here, and then sort of, those days have gone, do you know what I mean? With from, and, and it's a serious business, and Omega's a very serious part of it, you know. Yeah, and, you know, part of the biggest... Yeah, uh, manufacturer of watches and componentry that there has been part of this watch group. Yep. A hu- huge advantage that the, that they obviously have, and we'll, we'll talk about that history as we go yep. through. Yeah, um, and and the history of uh, of Omega started back in Le Chaux de Fonds, one of the, the great centres of. Uh, of yes, uh, you and I take our summer holidays there. It's so wonderful. <laughs> My mother it's, went to finishing school near Le Chaux de Fonds, actually. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. There you go. So it's famous for two things now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing when you go to any of these, whether it's uh, Grenchen or Santimir or whatever, they're they're very small farming towns, generally speaking, with some beautiful, big, uh, modern, state-of-the-art, you know, factory. uh, But Lachaud de Fonds, I mean, mean, they moved from Lachaud de Fonds pretty early on, but Lachaud de Fonds 
is this sort of Motown for watches. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not the, not necessarily the most, always year-round the most delightful weather, but, um, you know, it, you do begin to sense that there is this geo-specific kind of almost cultural activity aspect yep. to it. It's part of who the Swiss are, and you really do see that in towns like La Chaux de Fonds and like yep. Bien. Yep. They're either wonderful engineers or wonderful farmers. I think yeah, some yeah. of them were both in the old days. Yeah, yeah, but they were the old Calvinist families and so on. But um, And they started as La Générale Watch Company uh, back then, 1848. They were mainly doing uh, pocket watches, of course, and uh, back then, as we know. Louis Brandt, and actually, Omega and its history, it's pretty much the history of the, of the Brandt family. Well, I think what, I mean, first of all, Omega was the name of a caliber. Yeah. Um, and it became so, it was such a revolutionary thing that the company adopted its name. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's like um, the most famous product, you know, overtaking the name of the brand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the the genius was, at a very early stage, was to series produce a caliber with totally interchangeable components. Yeah. So if you were a watchmaker in Timbuktu or wherever it was, uh, you could sort of write into Omega and Bien and say, I want this part, and they could dispatch it to you, safe in the knowledge that you would could fit it without adjusting it, without, you know... It, it, and I mean, I know it's obvious today... But this is well over 100 years ago they yeah. just got this. And that, I think, accounted for their preeminence. I mean, they made, I can't remember exactly, I think it was 1945. By 1945, they had made, they recorded something like 10, I think it was 10 million watches. Yeah. Uh, which I know these days is not a lot, but in the days when you had these lots of little établisseurs and brands as such were not really known, it was mainly the retailer that was strong and then... Only later in the sort of 20s and 30s, a lot to do with Rolex, actually, did the brands start putting their names on things as opposed to the retailers. So for, I mean, it was a huge concern already. I mean, the pictures of the time, uh, you know, of the 1880s, 90s, you do see already a very well-organized industrial approach. Yes, and... Hugely influenced, you know, we did the, uh, the history of the, the Swiss watch uh, industry previously, and one of the big influences, because in, in that uh, part of, uh, of the history of the of industry, there was a real challenge kid come from the US, yeah. who had really taken mass ma manufacturing techniques to the, the world of watches and were producing more, cheaper for sure. Well, they were producing cheaper and more accurate, and I mean, this was, this was something that was on the point of killing Switzerland in the 19th century. I remember when Patek went, took an early visit, I think in the 1850s it was, to the US, his one and only visit. Um, he, were, he left the Waltham Watch Company amazed at the level of precision mass production that they were capable of. And then Switzerland hit back with you know, thing, things like the Seal of Geneva and also industrial approaches, um, you know, such as such as the um, the one that Omega introduced. Yes, and, and, I, and if I remember right, it was the uh, this grand exhibition that was done in Philadelphia, yeah. I think sometime in the late 19th century that terrified the Swiss industry, and that's where some of these movements forward, they never went from mass ma manufacturing, thankfully, 
but they certainly started making common sense moves like interchangeable parts. Yes, talking about. I mean the Industrial Revolution finally reached the yeah. valleys of Switzerland. Yeah. Yes, yep. And uh, I tell you, the other thing I find amazing back in that day, and I've mentioned it a few times in our podcast, is just how young some of these hugely influential people were. Louis Brandt that we talked about was 23. But also his sons, what was amazing and what was rather sad is his sons, I think, died before they were 50. And they were the ones, to my mind, who really took what had been, I think, a fairly standard workshop business and propelled it into the 20th century. I mean, the the foresight, the vision, you can, I, I suppose, early pioneers in the automotive world, such as Henry Ford, maybe, that kind of thing. Visionary, visionary. And also, you know, sadly, I think they both died in 1903. Yes, when, again, the, the next generation, yeah. Paul Emile Brand takes yeah. over, he, and he was the grand old age of 24. I'm, yes. I'm always amazed by that. Just oh, yes, I mean, quite a late starter by Swiss standards, yeah, yes. Yeah, but uh, as, as we've called it often, it was the Silicon Valley of, uh, of its time. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, these were, these, were, these were, I mean, we forget now, but these were technologically advanced Objects. Yep. And um, as you mentioned, uh, the, the company becomes called uh, Omega after Caliber 19. Uh, that happened in 1903. That was with the Paul Emile brand. And then this statement, I actually think I read this statement from uh, Stephen Urquhart, who was a long-term uh, CEO of the, of the company, saying it's all about the movement, which I think really typifies they're very I mean and and I think that there again I mean if we can jump forward a hundred years just quickly to look at the coaxial which is the thing that I think defines Omega today more than anything it 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 is again it's not a style it's not a marketing gimmick it's a genuine mechanical innovation that is not just a prototype or a limited run of 10 or 20 or 100 it's it's a genuine improve. I mean, it took some time to get right and to get it to work properly, but it's a, it's a genuine step forward and it's something different. Yep, and of course, from a British uh, engineer and everything, everything as we know comes back to this great island nation <laughs> of ours. Um, so, just back in the history again, there's a huge association with, uh, uh, with sport uh, and o- Omega, they actually started being the official timekeeper for all the Swiss sports. Back in 1905, but then well, they did. A, they did. A, they did. I think the Arnold Bennett balloon race in 1909. I mean, Arnold Bennett was this extraordinary larger-than-life character, and you know, ballooning was. I mean, already then you had you had uh, heavier-than-air-powered craft, but ballooning aviation. They were involved with that at a pretty early age, at a pretty early stage. So again, it shows that they were very up on, yep. you know, I don't, I don't know what a sort of commensurate sport would be today, but, you know, it, they, they were willing to look at the most unusual things. Yeah, and, and that whole spirit of adventure and yep. achievement and everything that's, uh, that's ran through their DNA. And, of course, then they become the official timekeeper for the Olympics from uh, 1932. Yes, and, I mean, what strikes me looking at the history of their involvement with the Olympics is that you do have this sense of scientific progression in terms of, obviously, greater precision, um, smaller fractions of a second, but things like uh, developing photo-finish technology as opposed to tape that the the, the runners would break. 
Um, also, they did away with the starting pistol, and they have uh, they had some elect electronic thing. I mean, there every Olympic Games, it seemed that they came up with. I mean, I'm probably wrong, but every uh, Winter Olympics too, yeah. they would come up with a different approach. So not a different, but a, an improvement every time, so that they would be constantly upping the ante. In, I mean, it, it, and th that again was genuine research. It wasn't a sort of marketing sponsorship thing. It was a genuine, you know, pushing pushing the boundaries ever forward. Yeah. And they've been the official timekeeper of, of the Olympics ever since. And, and as you rightly say, moving their technology continually. I must say, I love seeing the old uh, uh, chronograph, the old stopwatches when you get back to the thirties, um, with a beautiful big white face and. And uh, the rattrapant, uh, yeah. so that they they can do a, sp a split second timing and so on. But, um, I'd love to get older one actually. You can even afford to... to now with the with the share price right, of okay. uh, your company. So thank you um... for reminding me of that. I forget about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You must never forget your success. It's all relative, isn't it? But uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, in uh, 1948, probably the most famous collection we ever think about in a, a year. It's uh, uh, regularly celebrated uh, 1948, the creation of the Seamaster. Yes, but again, I think if you look back to 19, was it 1928 when they introduced the Marine or 19, or around about 29, something yeah. like that. So they were already, I mean, the Seamaster is, is I, I mean, until the recent spike in the Speedmaster, I would say that the, the Seamaster was the best known. But if you go back to this late 20s, they had this watch called the Marine, which was a square-cased watch, but it was, it was like two bits that fitted one over the other to create this hermetic little chamber yeah. that would keep the movement waterproof. It's a, I've tried to put one on, and it's actually incredibly... I found it quite difficult because you've... I mean, but... It, they dropped it over the side of a boat on a bit of string in Lake Geneva, and it, it, such was the testing in those days. And I think it went down to about 70 metres. Yeah. Came up were, after about an hour working perfectly. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the Seamaster is... It, but it doesn't come out of nowhere, do you know what I mean? It yeah. comes again out of this approach, this corporate culture, if you like, of innovation and yeah. technical advancement. Because, again... They had been making a lot of watches during the war for the Allies, yes. a lot of instrumentation. So this whole military thing had informed their development of yeah, civilian watches. And the, the Seamaster, you know, it's, it's just a very, very evocative name. Yeah, it's a great name. I think it's a great aesthetic. You know, and then in 52, we have the Constellation. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually, I don't know when, the whole kind of pie pan look on the dial, do you know when that came about? No, but it's particularly associated with the constellation. Yep. I'm, uh, as everything these days in the industry, uh, I know Gerald Genta was doing designs for Omega yep. in the 50s uh, as, as a very young designer. And... Um, I think he, though, more had to do with the shape of the case and the C-type shape of the, you know, the 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 C, the two Cs. I mean, it's, yep. yeah. but the pie pan thing again is something that people sort of go on about. And I mean, I think for me, those constellations of the fifties uh, and sixties with those exceptional bracelets 
are fantastic. I mean, you know how the Patek 2526 on a gay frere bracelet has, you know, become a super hot vintage thing. I mean, you used to be able to pick them up for 10, 15,000 quid, and now if you get a nice one, it's, you know, you're up over 75. Um, I think that these old constellations with these beautiful bracelets demonstrate, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's a poor man's 2526. I'm just saying that it's, um, you've got a lovely dress watch on an on a aesthetically interesting bracelet for a fraction. Now, you know, ask me if, which would I rather have, I'd probably, you know, to be honest, tell you the Patek. But I, I have one of these old constellations and it's, it's a gorgeous thing to have, you know, in its own right. And again, it's, you know, the eight stars, I think, were for the eight, uh, for the eight uh, Q records they yes. broke for the, you know, so I mean, you've got, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, you're reminded constantly, even in their very elegant artistic watches, of this incredible sort of record of, of, of precision and engineering excellence. Yep. And um, the uh, moving ahead, not not that much further ahead, fifty seven, uh, the trilogy of, of uh, their professional range that they celebrated again, yep. obviously just uh, two years ago with the Speedmaster, the Seamaster, and uh, and the Railmaster. I think the Railmaster gets often overlooked. Yeah. Um, but. I, I mean, again, this was the era of the tool watch, what they were doing over at Rolex. You know, you had watches for activities underwater, you had watches for um, activity for scientists, because this was, this, don't forget, this was the atomic age. We were either going to be saved by atom, the atomic science, or we were going to be blown up by it. But either way, science was everywhere, science fiction. Yep. Even the cars looked like spacecraft from America. You know, this was the thing. And magnetism was the, was the great enemy then of, as now, of basic Swiss watch, well, basic any mechanical movement would be, just, you know, you, you put it near a magnetic force and it distorts it. I mean, it, it makes the um, spring stick to itself and therefore you get a sort of, it's worse than useless. So, I mean, I, I think that also the Railmaster, given what they've done today with Metas, um, what do, what do they call it? Master chronometer certification, I think. Uh, the Railmaster is, you know, deserves not rehabilitation because it hasn't really gone away, but I mean, it deserves to be appreciated more, I think, yep. for the role it's had. Yeah. Well, I know when, it, when they introduced those three as the uh, trilogy collection that they had, they had done true to the old vintage look yep. um, as a collection. They were hugely popular. We couldn't yep. could come anywhere close to getting enough, uh, enough of them. Um, and then rolling forward to the 60s, a decade I know that we both loved. Yes. Um, so at the start of the 60s, uh, you had JFK's inauguration and he was wearing an Omega. Given to him by a friend, I think, who was the ambassador to Ireland, yep. I believe. Um, again, sort of iconic figure, but my favourite one was the Speedmaster that they gave to Nixon. I much prefer Nixon to JFK. I don't know why. I mean, he's a sort of slightly more controversial choice, probably, is why I like him. But um, obviously, Kennedy's thing was that he'd had this amazing build-up to be president. Yeah. And then, and then he's a few days in office, and the Russians send a man into space, so he's got this bloke whizzing around, Gagarin, already. And he's a farmer. He's a bloke was a farmer's son, you know, and he's suddenly whizzing around, beating the all-powerful America. His invasion of Cuba, 
becomes an international joke. Yeah. And there's this wonderful story, which I paraphrase and probably get terribly wrong, but he was tearing his hair out one evening, walking around the office saying, you know, listen, we want to get ahead in the space race. What can we do? And then somebody, someone said, put a man on the moon. He said, look, how do we do that? And he said, look, even if the janitor knows, I don't mind who it is, but we're going to put a man on the moon. Yep. And bring him back, and they, yep. and they, and they did, and then it was Nixon who got the first of the gold, the gold the first of the first gold commemorative Speedmasters. Yep. Obviously, he didn't accept it, and so it's in the Omega Museum. But yes. I rather it rather tickles me that both Nixon and Kennedy, who had yeah. that amazing television face-off debate, yeah, yeah great, uh, great adversaries in the in yeah. those years. But yeah. yeah, I agree with that. I think it was a wonderful era of American politics. Oh, absolutely riveting. Yeah. Yep. Because, of and course, it was LBJ, the great southern yep. operator, who first of all had everything in, came from Texas, I believe. So, yep. surprisingly, um, Dallas was the, um, it was Houston, wasn't it? Houston, the, where, was, where this, uh, NASA was yes. centered. Yeah. Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Yep. And um, I think it was 5% of the GDP of America by the mid-60s was being devoted to space exploration, which is an incredible amount of the preeminent power of the time. Yeah. And of course, the Speedmaster was certified by NASA as the official use for yeah. when you're strolling around the moon or bombing about space. Yeah, or trying to find your way back into the atmospheric gravitational pull, as, as happened. Yep, I think later. it was, was it 13 uh, or 14 seconds then? 14 Apollo seconds. 13 and it was 14 seconds, yes. yes. That, that's exactly right. But uh, they were first selected by, uh, by NASA in 1965. Uh, apparently the Speedmaster chronograph was the only one that passed all of the tests that they had set. All of the tests for extravehicular activity. I think what I remember hearing was that it was the many of the watches failed because they had bimetallic hands yeah. that heated and cooled at different rates. And one of the tests was to take the watches to a very high temperature and to a very low temperature quite quickly. Yep. And the metals on the hands heated and cooled at such, at such different rates that they twisted the hands so that the, they, they couldn't move across each other, ah, right. which, is a bit, which is a bit of a problem. Yep. And magnetism, I'd heard, was one of the other... I mean, listen, they, also they didn't know what they were going into, so yeah, they tested for pretty much everything, yeah. you know. And, uh, and, and only, the, uh, only the Speedmaster passed, and since then, huge association with, uh, with space exploration. And, uh, and again, I think it's something that, obviously today, we haven't, I mean, in the 70s, you'll remember that we were all going to be living on the moon by now. I mean, yeah. 2019, you and I would have been having this conversation from the point of view of the early 70s, We'd have been living on the moon. You'd have had several outlets on the moon. You'd be thinking of opening your first project on Mars. <laughs> and um, it, lo and behold, it didn't happen. But yeah. this watch reminds us of a... I mean, if you think about it, people born at the beginning of the century, our, our grandparents' generation, say, beginning of the century, slightly end of the last, end of the 90s, they saw such incredible change. They saw yeah. from horse and cart to, to man going to the moon. Yeah. And... You know, we haven't, we haven't, I don't think, I mean, the internet's great, but we haven't been back to the moon for a while, you know. No, and actually we had a, I was chatting uh, with Nick and uh, Giles English from, a, yeah. from Braemont, and we're also talking about Concorde, and, and amazing that, uh, that we had supersonic passenger airlines back in the 60s, and we don't have them now. Amazing uh, that we, I mean, it's more amazing that we just decided to go back. I mean, I took the Concorde once to Barbados, and it was extraordinary. I had breakfast 
in London and then landed in the in the West Indies before breakfast there. Yeah. So uh, it was it was brilliant. Yeah. I was mentioning when I, when I, with uh, with Nick and Giles, I was commuting on it for a wee while. No. Yeah. 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 I don't know how I managed to swing that one, but I. I You're was, a valuable executive time. Yeah. So I managed to convince somebody of, but um, yeah, yeah. I was living in the states. We were moving back to back to London, and so I kind of taken on the job before we moved the family. And I managed to convince them I could only be doing it on a weekly basis. Of course. So it was Concord. So, well, I mean, I yeah. think it was absolutely mandatory. Yeah. But it was an experience, wasn't it? I mean, you oh, never... Sure. Bloody uncomfortable. It wasn't the most comfortable seat. No, that's exactly what I was saying to them. It was wonderful that you were in Concord. It was especially wonderful that yeah. you were arriving in New York in four hours. Yes. Which was amazing, yeah. But, uh, but not especially comfortable. No. Yeah. So in uh, 67, we just mentioned uh, briefly the DeVille, the, the City Watch. Which uh, another you know great collection mm-hmm. from uh, from Omega, uh, very very elegant. But then uh, of of course rolling forward with the space exploration theme in '69, we had the moon landing. Yeah, and the watch this year that they brought out, not the one with the footprint on the back, but yeah. the gold one for me is that that is what I call the Nixon watch. Yeah, stunning. It was the first gold Speedmaster in '69, and they have recreated. Not recreated, but they have paid homage to it. They've got this new gold called inevitably moonshine gold, which yeah. is apparently more yellow or something. I mean, so it's a lovely thing. Yeah. And I, I actually am lucky enough to have one of the original ones from the late sixties. Wow. Um, bought, I hesitate, I, I hasten to say, at a time when nobody else wanted them, and now suddenly they're quite desirable. But, yeah. but the 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 modern one is something that I would really love to have. It's it's a beautifully executed piece. Yeah, I love it too with the with the, the red bezel. Oh, I can meet around it. So it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, and but I mean they're only re- making just over a thousand of them, I think. Yes, uh, I mean there's some in the original one. It was supposed to be a thousand, and then they had to do a thousand and eighteen or a thousand yeah. twenty something because they had some other astronauts and also a couple of sort of dignitaries that needed them. Oh, so right. it was one of these sort of. So we'll have to slip our names. I do believe yeah. that there will be space for extra dignitaries such as you and me. Yeah, yeah. so I'll, I'll arrange that when, uh, when we're Will you do that? Yeah, yeah. They'll listen to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, and actually, I, I remember watching the moon landing. I was in a, a boarding house in Blackpool in, uh, in July 1969. They had television there in those days? Yeah, black and white, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was black and white. And I remember being with my being with my pal and I went, we, we had a couple of dates waiting for us, but he insisted that we, we stayed in the, uh, the boarding house to uh, actually see uh, Neil Armstrong walk out for the, for the first time. And I'm really glad he did, because not many of us were, uh, um, you know, uh, it can remember exactly where we were watching the watching I mean, the it was, it was, and I mean, the world was a very different place then. I mean, no, yeah. I, I mean, we must sound like dinosaurs speaking about it, but it was a you know, um, all those TV shows like Life on Mars, and yeah. they don't do half the, they don't understand half the, yeah. uh, I mean, it was a very, very different time. So going to the moon had even more impact, I think, yeah. really. And it certainly was an age to an earlier point that you felt we could do anything. Yeah. That the, the pace was only ever going to increase. Yes, and, everything was only yeah. going to get better. Yeah. And or disease was going to end. I mean, there was yeah. a sort of the, 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 the t- rather touching belief in medical science and the power of science in general yeah. to just to just propel us forward yeah um I, I don't quite know when that but i didn't quite know when that stopped but also the early 70s was when they did that amazing series of watches with andrew Greamer, the about time do you 
Do you remember those? You remember Grima, don't you? That shop on German Street. I'm sorry, but I don't actually. Oh, he was brilliant. Yeah. He was the sort of he was he was the celebrity jeweller. Yep. Did the royal family? You often see the Queen on her Christmas broadcast wearing one of his brooches. Yeah. Very sort of funky '60s stuff. But he was so famous that he did his own. He, he was used to advertise Canada Dry. He was oh, the right. sort of jet set jeweller. But but he did yeah. this. He was considered the most avant-garde jeweller of the time, and he did this collection called About Time of some seventy-plus one-off pieces using. Uh, quartz uh, using crystal but actually smoky quartz and things like that as the watch glass and textured gold and I mean really yeah. really far out uh, to use the sort of not uh, the, the vocabulary of the time really far out designs oh yeah wild man wild baby oh very yep. very crazy yep. man but I no, I think by 1967 the furthest south I had ventured was probably a black pool I don't think I'd made it to London yet uh, back then, so that, that, that'd be my reason for uh, for not knowing him. But then, uh, then as you mentioned earlier, obviously 1970, you had the uh, Apollo 13 and the, yeah. the near tragedy and the 14 seconds to re-enter the atmosphere. Yeah, uh, made famous in the movie, of course, and uh, it led to Omega getting the, the Silver Snoopy Award. Yes, yeah. Uh, Snoopy been the good luck charm of yeah, uh, and of I mean, so dependable dependability of an old friend. I mean, they did a, yeah. it. Was rather. It, and again, yeah, I've said it earlier, but the, this to remind us of what it was all about. Omega does a very good job, I think, of keeping the romance of space yep. travel alive. Yep, yep. And um, from the landing, I think they say that the Neil Armstrong ones disappeared. I think that's for the and and the one they have uh, is Buzz Aldrin's. Is in the Smithsonian, if I'm yes, I, that I mean, I, I, there's a guy called Jim Reagan who is who was the sort of quartermaster, if you like, of uh, NASA at the time, and he was telling me that um, also three of the watch glasses popped out on the moon, so there's the remains of three watch glasses right. up there, but that the watches came back without the glasses. And with all this fine black dust inside, moon dust, but still working. So all they had to do yeah. was just clean them up, stick um, a new glass on, and put them back into operation. Yeah. I mean, it shows, again, just the sort of power of a great Swiss watch that you yeah. just, you know, and you, know, you, you know, you sort of take it to the moon and sort of bring it back and just give it a wash and a brush up, and then it's ready Off to ready go. to go. Yeah. Right, you know. But I mean, uh, obviously, a great time it was a really tough time back then. Now we're into the seventies and eighties for mechanical Swiss. Uh, watchmaking because of course it was a quartz crisis yeah and uh, it then led to the creation of uh, of the group that Omega is a part of now the Swatch yeah. group and, uh, yeah. and uh, Nicholas Hike senior did you meet Nicholas Hike senior he anytime? didn't like me very much I have to say ah, I, I um, understood him to be a man of taste but well not. I mean he maybe he was I don't yeah. know no he got very cross with me once about uh -huh. something and he never he wasn't a man to easily forgive but you can't deny his um I mean, he certainly was aware of his own brilliance, but you can't yeah. deny this single visionary, and you have to be pretty stubborn to do that. I mean, yeah. to, to, who just had this vision for the industry and who revived what essentially looked at the time as relevant as the Alpenhorn, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, sure. And he thought, he saw this. So, yes, I mean, he was a character. Yes, I did deal with him from time to time. And... Um, I remember him with respect, if not necessarily great affection. 
And um, obviously, but I mean, he felt the same, if not worse, about. I think he felt far worse about. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was a mutually respectful. Yes. Uh, uh, overall, uh, and obviously creating then the Swatch Group out of out of two other. Uh, groups that he bought S I H H, which was Omega and Tiso, and uh, and Alsag or A U S A, yes, and uh, and then it became the source of the ETA movements and so on, and hugely influential then and today, but hugely influential I think in reminding the world that great watches were made in Switzerland and analog was uh, was just a, a wonderful. I mean, thing you know, I mean, there are there are a handful of individuals who contributed to 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 basically what. The industry that we have today, and it literally was a handful of men, you know. Yeah. And he was Primus Inter Pares, you know, in that he was. Uh, he was. A, he had the idea, and he also had the strength of character to push it through. Um, and also, he made people listen. So he was persuasive. He was yeah. gifted. He was energetic. Undeniably, yeah. without him. I wouldn't say that we wouldn't have the industry today, but it would be very, very different very looking. Different, yeah. And I very much doubt that Omega, well, I don't very much doubt, but I think that there would be brands, I mean, I think Omega might be one of the brands that might have, might have one of the many that disappeared, you know. Yep, yeah. Well, of course, back then, brand, you know, a brand like Blomper had stopped all production yeah. and, until it was resurrected by... Yeah, and I mean, things like Ford. Universal, you know, were, I mean, there were brands that were super important. Breitling was another one that yep. shut up shop in 79, 80. Yep. I mean, all these, all these, uh, and Hoyer didn't, didn't shut up, but the Jack Hoyer floated the company in the early 70s, and it, and by, by the end of the decade, he'd lost control of the company. So, yep. I mean, it was an incredible storm. I yep. mean, it was just, it just, it, it more than decimated. I mean, decimated means that every tenth thing is destroyed. Yep. I would say that it was, you know, there was something I've been told statistics don't know how likely that, but something like seventy percent of the workforce lost their jobs. Yep. That there was a missing uh, and a missing generation at the watch. You know, people people studying watchmaking. Yep. You'd have one where you had used to have a class of twenty. You know, all this all this sort of statistics. So I mean, for Omega to survive that is, you know, I would say almost entirely down to. Uh, Hayek senior. Yep, and of course not Swiss. Yeah, Lebanese engineer. Uh, in, interestingly, but yeah, it was a well, clearly, truly described as a crisis for the industry. But out of the ashes of that crisis came the luxury brands that we know today, yep. and obviously including uh, Omega. And um, so they march on to the nineties when they become the official watch of Commander Bond. Yes, it's. I think that's a definitely a generational thing. Um, how you see uh, the Bond watch. Yep. I mean, I'm probably still a Connery, yeah. Connery man. Yeah, as am I for obvious reasons. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. and uh, we're both men of taste, I think, is the answer <laughs> to that one. But, uh, but I think also, I mean, you know, then Roger Moore was more amusing for my kids. And I think that Pierce Brosnan brought a lot to the role. You know, he sort of had a, some of the suavity, a bit of the Roger Moore about him. Yeah. And... It'll be 25 years next year that it'll be a quarter of a century that Bond has worn Omega. Yeah. I mean, there was that, which I was assured was not product placement, but I don't know that script when Eva Green says, what watch are you wearing to him? And I said, oh, but she, you know, and he says, I'm wearing an Omega or something. Do you remember that? And they're in the train carriage. It's um, with Eva Green and um, Daniel Craig. Yep. 
I forget which one that one was. It was one of those ones where he was supposedly more gritty and realistic. But I don't want Bond to be gritty and realistic. I yeah. like the jag, the gags and the dinner jacket. Yeah. And, the, and they, for the first two of the um, Daniel Craig ones, I think they even had watches that didn't have special exploding magnetic circular buzzsaw action to them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas I think yeah. first or second of the... There was one with a miniature grappling hook once used, Omega with, a, Omega with a miniature grappling hook used by Pierce Brosnan. Frequently you found that you could use the watch as either a bomb or a detonator. Yep. Um, well, it saved them, Inspector, of course. Uh, with, yes. With, uh, with this watch, this was the first Bond the watch. The very, very same one, I know. Which happens to be a beautiful watch, obviously. But, uh, and but, it's uh, nice that they, that they had him wearing a kind of classically inspired one. You yeah, know? yeah. Yep, the great NATO strap, uh, no, very cool. So from from 1995, they've they've been the uh, um, they've been the watch of uh, Commander Bond. So huge association with the Olympics, yeah, and uh, and uh, then with uh, lunar and space uh, exploration, and then uh, Commander Bond. So good, great associations, and then as you've uh, rightly mentioned, a few. And everybody's times, heard of. There can't be many people around the world who haven't heard of the Moon, the Olympic Games, or James yeah. Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're going to get three properties you want to be associated with. Yeah, like we'll take the moon, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a large silver thing yeah. in the sky at we'll, night. Yeah, we'll leave the sun to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then you, you have mentioned George Daniels a couple of, t couple of times, but just to see again the importance of his you know, invention of the coaxial movement. I mean, George Daniels is regarded by many as the greatest watchmaker of the 20th century. I qualify that by saying the greatest 18th century watchmaker living in the 20th century because yep. his watches bore a room. I mean, he's, he's, he was also, people often overlook the fact that he was an amazing Breguet scholar. I mean, he, he his work on Breguet, his, his books and, you know, is, is unparalleled. Yep. So, I mean, that deserves a mention. And his pocket watches looked... Breguet-esque, you know, um, whereas this escapement that he designed for, that he did, tried to sell around and then finally Omega had the vision to take it up. Uh, I mean, essentially, I think the thing is that there's less contact, so you get less friction, therefore less lubrication, therefore yeah, greater precision. Yeah. But it's a funny looking thing. I mean, you've got a, you've got a, um, th you, the lever has got three ruby pallets, You've got two escape wheels. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's fairly radical rethinking of the architecture of the Swiss lever escapement. Yep. And uh, it's, it's clearly been a great thing for, uh, for Omega, as you see. Do you find it, that it, people come in and ask now? Do they know, I mean, do, I mean even if yes. they don't necessarily know quite how it works? Uh, I mean, for sure, all of our salespeople are very versed in it, and, and will uh, will talk the benefits of uh, yeah. a co coaxial escapement. Uh, but I think it is getting known. I think they've done quite a bit of you know impactful marketing on it. Yeah. Um, so I think it is getting known and, uh, and getting asked for it. And uh, you know, it's it's a very very tangible benefit to be well, able to is. talk about Well, it is, and this. I mean, this is again. I mean, uh, this takes us again to uh, master chronometer certification. Yep. You get. And the magnetism is, the, the, the anti, I mean, because there's two ways of doing anti-magnetic watches. You either, one of them is you stick it inside a kind of soft iron case yep. around which all the magnetic waves break. Yep. Or, or you just have the, the key components are anti made of anti-magnetic yep. material. So they were using silicon, um, you know, silicon springs and, and things like that. Yep. So. 
Um, no, no, a, a wonderful development, and then of course the Metas testing that they put yep. the product through as well for their, uh, for the confirmation and assurance for everybody. And uh, we mentioned earlier just the last couple of years some great developments. So just chatting a bit about uh, about some of them in 2018, which I think you know was a tremendous as it happens in the last Basel world mm -hmm. uh, for Omega it seems and for the Swatch group but I thought of tremendous products presented oh yeah there. tremendous yeah the dark side of the moon yep. product, you, you like that with the yellow and they do a good job with those because I mean the, 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 we haven't really talked about the cult of the Speedmaster but yep. it's every bit as geeky as that surrounding the Daytona I find yep. um and that is, I, th I think, as the Daytona, as the Daytona vintage models become ever less accessible, people are looking now at Omega, and for the collector, some the Omega Speedmaster's got an awful lot going for it because there's these so many different iterations. There's limited editions. Yep. There's, and in the past, you've got things like the Ultraman with that sort of orange hand. You've got that kind of racing calibrated. Well, you got, I mean, you got the Alaska. Then they made the Alaska as a um, that was originally a prototype from the late 60s, early 70s, and then, it, then they remade it, didn't they, in I forget what year, but um, yeah. it was the one with the big red thing around it, funny-looking thing. Yep. And then the Snoopy we talked about earlier yep. as, a, as a great Speedmaster. And, of course, that's one that they presented uh, just a couple of years ago was celebrating 68 when Apollo 8 went round to the, yes. the dark side of the moon. That's the great thing um, about the moon. There's always something to celebrate. Yeah, no, sure. And, uh, and even and when, do you remember when there wasn't a Bond film and he and he had a sort of they made yeah. a Commander Bond, they made a Commander watch anyway. I mean, yeah. they're not they're not shy of. Um, yeah. But but you know why not? We all love that. We all we all love it. Actually, they have got something coming up this year. I think. I believe yeah, they have. And, uh, yeah, they will have told you. They won't have told me, of course. They oh, would have right. told you as a trusted partner. Yeah. Um, but then I think they're also very very clever about things that uh, really resonate with consumers. So they, they have the quote on the back from Jim Lovell. Yeah. You know, we'll see you on the other side as he as he made his way around for the first time to see the uh, that side of the moon. But also what what is impressive is that these are not products to which they attack attach a marketing story. These are proper watches. Yeah. That Yes, they. You know, you can romance them with James Bond or whatever, but they are proper watches, and yeah. I think that that again, after the dark period in the in the eighties and nineties, um, you know, from the mid nineties onward, they began to sort of come back with serious large numbers, bringing going back to what they did with the original Omega Caliber, is making something that can be made in large numbers that delivers a genuine benefit to the wearer and you know to the market yeah yeah i mean other things at the injuries i thought the, the range of the uh, seamaster diver watches that did the 300 oh i love really that cool. i mean the plow prof um yeah. was was one of my i mean god knows how you you're underwater and you've got that button to press and then you've got to move the yeah. best i mean jesus christ you've eaten by a shark <laughs> before you work that one out but what i heard was that the case was so solid that it was actually proof to helium you know how on many diving watches for super depth they have the helium, helium escape, escape valve because yeah. the, otherwise the, when they're decompressing the glass would pop off. Yep. And apparently the Ploprof case construction was such that the, um, for the diving, for the time they were diving, the helium didn't ingress 
into the case, so they didn't need. I mean, that was the f uh, that was the first. I think they took it out of a solid block of steel. I don't know yeah. what they did with it, but it was pretty impressive. And that red button that you have to press, and then yeah, no, no, very very cool. I mean, another aesthetics that done the, the wave dial. I think has become very yep. very much associated with them, and that white enamel on the ceramic. But again, bezels. that's something that um, if you look at the uh, the what I call the Nixon watch of '69, and then this year's tribute to the 1969 watch, yep. you can just see that they respect the original, but then the, the materials within which they execute it are yep. immeasurably better. And that, that is, you know, they're not going back and using, making a pastiche of the old one using the old materials. They're yep. sort of, they're showing the respect, but then they're also showing the wearer that, you know, basically you can sort of, kind of put your arm in a kind of tree chopping device and although the, your arm will be mangled the watch will come out looking absolutely smashing you know <laughs> no i mean that and that's the secret to all that isn't it? using great technology modern technology but but holding that interest of the of, of the story and the heritage of, that it relates to and we've talked a couple of times about the whole the 50th anniversary of uh, apollo 11 and the collection that they're doing so on the, the front dial they've got the they get neil armstrong make, yep. making it, making his way down which is a really cool and then on the back of it on the case back the footprint the first footprint. Um, oh, did i tell you i drove the moon buggy around the streets of bien yeah they actually have one in the museum there and i asked them to bring it out and um, took it for a spin the traffic did not like me because the top speed's about 11 and a half miles an hour and you control it using a joystick yep. rather than a steering wheel. So it's like, kind of like a golf buggy, I suppose. Or... Yeah, but not as manoeuvrable. So yeah. I, I sort of crashed it. I'm a, I'm a terrible driver as well, yeah. but I almost crashed it into a pizzeria and the sort of traffic, <laughs> which sort of, it was, must have been rush hour or something because the traffic was sort of backed up about 500 metres. Um, but I, I, it must have been fun and just to, to realise that... Yeah. Uh, oh, terribly funny! You, yeah. were, you were actually on the moon buggy. Yeah, must have been a, must have been a great thrill. Uh, we've talked a few times about this beautiful uh, yellow gold with a red bezel uh, retro. That uh, if you can get one of those, listener, Fred. I would get on with it. I would get on with it. I would, I would. Yeah. Brian will be happy to take your orders now. Yeah. Are I mean, there any left, or are they all gone? Well, I think they were all ordered before. You know, they yeah. literally even before they, they communicated anything. They just uh, everybody heard about it and got their name out. And then he did these beautiful platinum versions. Have you yeah. seen them with the uh, blue, red, and and, uh, and green? Very, yeah, very they've got a beautiful the ruby dial the ru yeah. with the ruby hour markers is a fantastic watch. Yep. And again, that new Speedmaster with the moon phase and the incredibly practical way of reading the hours off. You know the sub-dial at 3 o'clock? It looks like a 24-hour dial in that you have a big hand and a small hand. And actually, it, it's simple as anything. The little hand tells you the hour yeah. and then the big hand tells you the minute. So you're basically down to its three hours and 15 minutes I've timed. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And again, it's a very small thing, but it sort of means instead of having to go from this dial to that dial, you just look at this one dial and you get a snapshot of how much time has elapsed since you pressed the button. Yeah. And it's just little things like that that move the traditional Swiss watch incrementally forward. Yep, yep. And there's uh, so much we could talk about with, uh, with, with Omega, and it's always wonderful to listen to you. I must say, Nick, your, your passion for watches, your knowledge of watches. And, You're uh, very kind. And the way you deliver it is, a, is always a great pleasure. So 
Thank you very much for uh, for joining me for, uh, Thank for this you podcast, very much. and uh, I'm, I'm sure we both very much enjoyed talking about this great brand, Omega. Oh yeah, love it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very much, our pleasure.